Hear now the word of God from the book of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Would you remain standing um, as we just uh, dedicate this time to the Lord? Heavenly Father, what we need more than anything this morning is to hear from you. Uh, Some of us, Lord, um, have been so encouraged by how you have met us, and some of us are sad. And there are people in this church whom you love, whose covenant promises are upon, are having a hard time of it. And I pray that through this time of hearing from your word, that we would all be encouraged, that your spirit would open up the eyes of our heart, illumine the sacred, confusing, and beautiful text, that we would know you and love you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, um, good morning. Uh, my name's Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, this morning, we're starting a new sermon series, which I'm really excited about. It's called Surprised by Christ. And the subtitle is A Study in the Writings of Moses. And we're specifically going to look at Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, What happens usually is like when people feel motivated to read God's Word, they'll just open to the front of their Bible, they'll start in Genesis 1, and they're getting after it, and they're reading, and they keep up with it. And if they're really motivated, they'll get to Exodus. But my experience is, most of you jokers have petered out by Leviticus. And... uh, and so, you know, we don't uh, get Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy doesn't get a lot of attention. And so I want to take some of those key passages and, and see what they mean. And um, so since this is a new sermon series, in the same way I did this for our study on Hebrews, I am going to use this very first sermon as a kind of introduction. And, and you know what that means is that there's a lot of information. Um, and so some of you like, you guys, like, geek out on this stuff. You're like, I love the information, Bible parts, and this sermon is, like, for you because you are made for this moment. And then some of you are like, can you already just get to the text already? Like, seriously? And uh, so I'm going to ask for you to just be patient on this introduction sermon. I do this because I think it's important. But it's important for a lot of reasons. Um, the reason why, I want you all to hear the heart of why we chose this sermon series it's, listen, when Jesus walked this earth in ancient Israel, going town to town, he went healing people and preaching about the kingdom of God. And when people were around Jesus, one of two things would happen. One, they either felt, they, they felt their soul's infinite worth and were drawn to him, or 
they hated him and they wanted to crucify him. Now with the second group, usually it was religious people. Usually it was religious people that hated him. And like, what's the rub? I mean, Jesus is awesome. Like, what are people so mad about? Why do they hate him? It was in John chapter 5 in the New Testament. We read the story of Jesus, and he strikes up this conversation with the religious elite of his time, like these Pharisees. And they were really hard-hearted, and they think that Jesus is trying to usurp their authority in their community uh, and the authority given to them by the Jewish religion, and they are feeling really, really condemned by Jesus. That's why they hate him, right? And uh, Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't condemn you. Moses, the guy you're reading, does. This is what it says in John chapter 5, verse 45. Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Did you catch that? Right? Jesus says that Moses... It's like writing about him. Now, this is really surprising because if you read the Torah, which is like the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you know, Genesis through, um, uh, through Deuteronomy, you'll, you won't find not one time the words Jesus Christ or the words cross or anything like that. And so why in the world would Jesus say this? Like, why is he saying that Moses is writing about him? And it, the answer is, is that everything that we learn about God is incarnated and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you can't actually understand the weightiness of Jesus Christ, what he did, without understanding the Torah, right? And so more specifically today, when we understand Exodus 40, those five verses that we heard that Elizabeth read for us, we are going to see how Jesus is actually at the very center, the very heart Old Testament. And when you see that in Jesus Christ, when you can see Jesus in all of that, there is going to be a depth, a real depth to our faith. And it's more meaningful. And listen, church, before I begin, this is a really big deal. So we are in a time in our culture where there is this mood that has come upon us, this mood, and there's this deep sense of aimlessness. And you say, is that true, Ronnie? Because, you know, I look around and activism is way up. Like everyone has a cause, right? Everyone has a cause. Just look at social media. Everyone has a cause. And I would say that's actually the evidence like we all feel like we have to manufacture, be a part of a cause, construct a cause, so that we know that our lives matter, so that we know with certainty that we have purpose. And so however well-intentioned our causes are, nothing is sticking. Like we are moving into depression, wearing our graphic tees, flying our flags and our banners, and putting yard signs at the same time, depression and the t-shirt. And in fact, our yard signs might be the biggest indicators that we are grasping for meaning to know that our lives matter. And that aimlessness, that meaningless, has, like we're no different here in this room. It's crept into our faith. 
right? Like our faith, our children look at us and it feels trite. It feels small. And how come? How come? It might be because it is. My friend Jeff, he's like my BFF, he sent me this funny meme and it said this. It says, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a jet ski. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen anyone unhappy on a jet ski? Well, it's funny, but what's, what's, what's that communicating beneath the humor? Like a jet ski cannot make your life worthwhile, but it can provide you with enough distraction so that you don't have to think about it. Well, we live in a world full of jet skis that allow us to avoid deep things. We live lives that are distracted. We are scrolling all the time, empty of deep things. And even our faith, even our religion feels empty, trite. So part of the problem, you guys, is that deep down we want a jet ski religion. We want the psychological crutch. We want the spiritual platitudes that allow us to bypass hard things. We want security and warm fuzzies without the teeth of God and his spirit shaping us. We love the things and the benefits of God. I don't know that we love God. And it's catching up to us. And it feels blah, Our our, our religious lives, our spiritual lives feel dutiful. It feels like uptight religion, and we are feeling aimless. We don't have the resources when this mood comes upon us. We want jet ski Christianity, and jet ski Christianity uses the exact same vocabulary as real Christianity. It's just devoid of all eternal purpose and meaning. So what I'm hoping, what I'm praying for for us this semester is that our studies in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, these writings of Moses, are going to give us the antidote to empty, weightless Christianity, to show a gravity to God that just draws us in, and and it's going to give us all-consuming, and I mean all-consuming meaning to our lives. You know, it's interesting. If you were to fast-forward and jump into Deuteronomy in chapter 6, uh, there, you see this glimpse of the intensity of Israel's faith. So in, in, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, it's what they call the Shema. Let me just read this for you. This is, what they, this is what everyone recited and memorized. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's intense for Israel. This was not a jet ski religion. Following Yahweh was not just another thing for a Jew. It was everything. Write them on your heart. Write God on your hearts and your hands. Let it be on your mind all the time. They are to be everything to you. It should define your family, define your own self-understanding. It is to be everything. 
And Jesus says, all of that writing, all of that binding, writing on your doorposts, writing on the city gates, all of that, put me there. Because it's about me. That's what Jesus says. And if we're going to learn this holy obsession that you find in the writings of Moses, when you go there, you're going to find Jesus there. And if we'll give ourselves to these books, we're going to cherish Jesus so much more. And we'll find the enduring meaning that not even this mood can, can like cloud over. So this morning, what I'm going to do in this introduction sermon is first, um, first what we're going to do is um, two things. One, I want to catch us up to where we are. Uh, the Bible always has a context. So I'm going to do a quick, brief survey of Genesis and Exodus. So sometimes, you guys, y'all know, the Old Testament can feel so disconnected to our modern world. And so I hope to build a bridge between you know, the ancient text and our modern day. And so I need to catch us up for Genesis and Exodus. And then what I want to do is just look at Exodus 40, which is our text, but it's actually the last five verses in the whole book of Exodus. And it's going to serve as a hinge that launches us into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a survey first of Genesis and Exodus, and then look at Exodus 40 and say, what does this mean for us today? That's what I'm going to do. So with that, let's start with this review, and let's start at the very beginning. And I mean the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the world, and he created it as a reflection of his goodness, his creativity, his beauty. And um, he also created it as a home for the crowning work of his creation, he created the world, all, of the, all things, as a home for our first parents, Adam and Eve. And this is what we know is to be the Garden of Eden. Now, in the garden, the Bible tells us, and this is a big, God walked with them. God and man dwelt together. All right, this is a big deal, so listen up. When the biblical authors talk about heaven as a concept, and they talk about heaven what they're saying in that moment is not that it's this like cloudy, bright place where people wear togas on the other side of the moon, right, in outer space. That's not what they think of when they talk about heaven. When they talk about and think about heaven, it's this. It is the place where God's immediate presence is found. Heaven is where God is. That's it. So in the garden, God is walking with Adam. And so in a real sense, God's presence, heaven, is with Adam on earth. Where God is, where man is, is the same place. Heaven and earth are together. Eden was heaven on earth. Now, as you follow along in Genesis, you know where the story goes. That clearly wasn't good enough for Adam and Eve. The Bible says that they sinned. Now, that's a really fancy way of saying they just lived life not in reference to God, all right? And they sinned, they disobeyed. And this is significant because what it did is it created a rupture between heaven and earth, right? So follow me. Because sin cannot dwell in God's presence, God 
graciously banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. Now, why do I use that word gracious? It's because God's holiness would have destroyed them, right? God's holiness was always sanctifying. It would have violently purified them, right? It would have incinerated them. And so God mercifully banishes them out of the garden. But for the first time, heaven and earth are now separate and they were earlier together. The dwelling place of man and God were together, but now sin comes, and now there's this great divorce. They're separated. Well, the story continues, and even as this rupture is happening, God promises that one day he's going to bring back heaven and earth together. He's going to start this reconciliation project to bring them together. How? It would be through a particular man and his descendants by giving them this land. That land is Canaan. It's what we know as modern-day Israel. And that man was this guy named Abraham. Now, through Abraham and his descendants, God was assembling this rescue team that was to bless the whole world. So through Abraham, this reconciliation was going to happen. Through Abraham, heaven and earth would be reunited. And so Genesis traces that story of Abraham's line increasing, right? He ends up having kids, and those kids have kids, and then you've got the 12 kids. Those 12 kids are the 12 tribes. And uh, if you follow Genesis, it's a messy, messy ride, of course. Uh, And and, um, But by the time that you finish Genesis... You have tons of people in the promised land, all of Abraham's descendants from the 12 tribes, but they actually have to leave the promised land to go to Egypt for a famine. Strangely, God's people are moving out of the promised land in order to survive. Now, when Exodus begins, Exodus 1 verse 1, it's 400 years later. And all of those descendants, all those Hebrews, all the Jews have been multiplying. And I mean, they are having babies, y'all. Y'all think we've had a pandemic boom? Got nothing on the famine boom, right? I mean, tons and tons. And what happens is this scares Pharaoh, just sheer volumes. So he becomes scared, and so Pharaoh makes them slaves. Now picture this, you guys. People who God had promised to use to bring ultimate reconciliation are now a slave people in Egypt. But God comes to rescue them. And the instrument, the voice piece of this rescue is Moses. So Moses is the author of Genesis through Deuteronomy. So God tells Moses through this burning bush that he's going to set his people free. So he sends 10 successive judgments, these 10 plagues, and they get so bad, the Pharaoh's like, all right, all right, just leave already, and here's my gold, you know, like, get out of here, you know, it's unbearable. But as soon as they start to leave, Pharaoh's heart gets hardened, and he's losing his labor force, and so he sends the most powerful army in the world after the slave nation, and Israel is backed in a corner. In front of them is the Red Sea, and behind him are trained soldiers, limitless soldiers and chariots. And they're like, all right, 
Like, I guess this is where it all ends. This is where we die. That was cute. It's a fun ride. What in the world is going to happen? And God, like, you oh, literally opens up the Red Sea. Like, and I cannot overstate how big of a deal this rescue is. The escape route is so amazing that it absolutely had to be God who did it. They could attribute this to no one else because water's standing up on the side. They're walking on dry ground. It had to be God. God rescued them. And the rescue is so unlikely that it forced the slave nation who spoke Hebrew with Egyptian accents to ask, why? Like, why us? Like, who are we? And that question is what Israel would wrestle with their whole lives. Why did God do it? Like, why? Just to show off his power, right? To be impressive, to wow people? No, God rescued them because he wanted to have a relationship with them. They wanted, he wanted them to know him. Listen, he wanted to dwell with them. He wanted a people where God and man could dwell together, just like Eden, you see. That purpose becomes explicit in Exodus 29. Right in the middle of Exodus, this is what it says. This is Exodus 29, verse 45. Listen to this. God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I will be their God, the one who's, who rescued them that I might dwell. So now, so now the people are on the other side of the Red Sea. They're free, but that's a far cry from dwelling with God, right? So what God does is he says, hey, I want you guys to build a mobile temple, right? Like a, a tent, a, a tabernacle. And they finally finish it. It has all these very particular specifications, right? This, this mobile temple. And um, in, in our passage at the very end of Exodus 40, which we just heard today, the creator of the universe, the savior of Israel, comes and fills it with his presence. The immediate presence of God is on earth. Heaven on earth. That's the tabernacle is heaven on earth. God is among his people. This is a huge deal. That's actually where we are in the story where we pick up today. And that alone helps us to understand the urgency, right, of Deuteronomy 6, right, the Shema, all that repeating, write this on your hands, write this on your doorposts, at your gates, in your, in your cities, right? Be obsessed with God's presence. And so this wasn't something that Israel just like intellectually assented to. This was like something that happened to them, right? God rescued them in order to dwell with them. This was about loving them, about saving them, about helping them. Literally, you guys, an Israelite, a Hebrew, could not find significance in themselves apart from what God had done, apart from his rescue. 
A Hebrew could not find purpose in life apart from what he was doing in them and among them. This was a huge deal. It was the frame of reference by which every Jew understood their purpose for existence. That's the gravity and the urgency of it. Their self-identity came from that rescue. Now, I just want us to sit in this for just a second before I move on. I want us to feel the weightiness of that. One of the reasons why our faith feels shallow is because we don't relate to our faith like that. It doesn't get down deep in us. It doesn't shape everything we are. We don't actually understand ourselves or our purpose or existence through that singular lens. Faith is more like a sideshow. So, so for Israel, the Lord was not a thing. It was everything. For us, the Lord is important, but it's on a list of important things, you see. Like, think of, like if you're a parent, you, you see this so graphically. I ask, what is important for, for me to, to pass on to, for my kids? What's, what's the most important things? And if you're not a parent, just think about it for yourself. Like, so our list will look something like this. Church, uh, sports, a good education, a good paying job, and a lovely spouse, right? Listen, if faith is one equally important thing among other important things in your life, you have a jet ski religion. It's a jet ski faith. It's a faith that exists. It's, it's true, but it just exists to give us security and comfort so that we can enjoy those other things, right? It's a, it's a faith that, it, that it helps us enjoy these other things that we really, really want. Those are the things that will make us happy. Those are the things that will make us feel whole. Those are the things that will make us feel self-realized, but think about like a Jewish father, like a dude who just walked through the Red Sea. And like he's on the other side. He's, he's raising his teenage son. And he's like, hey, Yeshua. Yes, Papa. I got some goals for the family for this semester. Let's focus on sports. Let's get a good job. Let's learn our trade. We're going to go to try to go to church a few times this semester. Like what? Like what? That sounds nothing like the urgency of Deuteronomy 6. Like, bind this on your heart, on your hand, on your doorpost. Don't stop talking about this. It's a far cry from that, isn't it? For Israel, they could not conceive of themselves apart from God's rescue. Apart from what God had done, it colored everything. I mean everything. And this Holy obsession can only make sense. This call for us to share this holy obsession can only make sense if this rescue happened to you. If you understand that you were truly rescued. I mean, think about it like this. Imagine you have a son, and your son has a very rare heart disease, and that heart is going to stop beating in seven days, your child will die. Right? Just imagine it. And so what do you do? You have to get a heart transplant. And so you do it. You survey everyone you know, every network you know. And it turns out 
you find one heart that works that's a fit. That's my daughter. My daughter's heart, she's happy, healthy. Her heart works just fine. Her heart would work for your son's heart. But she says, I'm in. I was made for this. This is my moment. I was made for this. I want to give my heart for your son's child so that they can live. And my daughter cheerfully does it. Cheerfully. Made for this. Gives her life away. My daughter dies. Your son lives. What would be the point of reference between me and you? Right? Wouldn't wouldn't that color everything? I mean, wouldn't that change, like, the nature of our relationship? It's got to mean something, wouldn't it? Like, wouldn't it? That's nothing compared to the rescue that we're talking about here. Faith can only be a peripheral thing if you have never been rescued or don't know what that means. But if you do... It'll be everything, you see. All right. I think we're caught up from Genesis to Exodus. I left out a few details. Um, But now we've arrived to the actual specifics of Exodus 40. This is the hinge that's going to prop us into Leviticus. Um, There, let me, can I just like get confessional with you guys here? It's fun. Uh, There are um, two things that I do that are so repetitive that sometimes it spins me into like a mini existential crisis. Can I tell you what they are? I was just talking to Jeremy Tittle about this. First, it's um, writing sermons. (laughs) I'm not trying to scare anyone. Uh, I don't love preaching. I don't love it. Uh, I promise everyone relax. For our relax. I promise to do my very best. I know what I signed up for. Uh, but it's like tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up, and I'm like, is this my life? Like, I have to write a sermon every week for the rest of my life. It's never going to stop. I love church. I want to sit in the pews with you and someone preach to me. Like, I like sermons. I just like to be preached to. Uh, and I get every morning, Monday morning, I get a little angsty, like, is it ever going to end? Like, no one even remembers these sermons, you know? And uh, so that's one thing that I do very repetitively. And there's a second one. And my BFF, Jeff, who I mentioned earlier, he, it's like inception. He put this in my brain, and it's ruined me. The second thing is brushing my teeth. Like, every day, multiple times a day, I shove that piece of plastic and brush into my mouth, and it can never stop. Like, I have to do this, because if I stop, the costs are too high. Only death will end this monotonous chore. And I have, like, these little mini, like, freak-out sessions, you know? All right, I know, I'm, I'm crazy, I'm a weirdo, a weirdo. But I freak out and have these little existential crises over nothing. Like, over nothing. But I want you to think back, like, in Moses' day. Like, by our standards their lives would have been terrible, right? They're farmers planting seeds, 
watering. Sometimes they had to haul water. Like they, they just spend their day like walking and hauling water and they can never stop. They have to do it all the time. This is their life every day. So they scrape by 35 to 40 years. They, they live generally short lives and then they die. That's it. Imagine the monotony of that. That's all you have to look forward to. It's actually why people, they talk about, that's why people talk about the weather all the time. You're know, like, I've moved to Denver. Like, we all, you know what we all talk about? It's the weather. Like, it, it's a throwback from an agrarian society. We're, we're still talking about the weather. I, like you. I know, I've been to Denver, and that's all we talk about. It's the weather. It's a thing. And so these Hebrews, are, they're not planning, like, for that sweet mountain veil vacation. <laughs> you know? Like, there's no jet ski to buy. There's nothing to distract them from the monotony of their life. It's so monotonous. And so, like, what's the point? Now, put yourself, put yourself in their shoes and listen to the first verse of our passage. This chapter 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That cloud is the presence of God, the overwhelming, reverent, fear-inducing presence of God is in the midst of this slave nation. And then at the end, the last verse, verse 38, look there again in your Bibles. It says, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So every Israelite at every point of their day can see the tabernacle. So literally the Hebrew civil engineers or whatever, they constructed their whole tent city with every street, every view looking not, at, not west to the awesome mountains, to the tabernacle so that everyone could see God's presence The monotony was broken. Why? Because the presence of the creator of the universe told them that their lives are not a blip of nothingness. That they were significant. That what they did was significant. That God sees them. God moved into the neighborhood. You know, have you ever met someone famous and it like makes you kind of feel good? So like... You guys know, y'all have heard a little bit about my work when I lived in Puerto Rico. We adopted this neighborhood, and after the, hur- you know, it's after the hurricane that devastated everything, and we were like, okay, we don't want to just hand out water. We want to uh, work with a community to give them l- long-term economic and vocational training and development, right? And so that project w- ended up garnering a lot of uh, attention, particularly from famous athletes. So there's this big philanthropic, Philanthropy, I think that's how you say it, philanthropy organization. It's called Rain and Rose. And they were so uh, excited about what we're doing. They adopted our mission. They did this huge event and tons of like Puerto Rican baseball players, like all the Puerto Rican royalty, they arrive. Y'all, I get super starstruck, so don't judge me because I like uh, whatever. Like if I wasn't a Christian, I would probably be like on one of those gossip TV just talking about following stars or something. So I'm a little starstruck, right? But I know, like Francisco Lindor, Alex Cora, Carlos Delgado, 
Carlos Beltran, right? I'm like hanging with these guys, eating dinner. Like I'm one of the dudes, right? But one of these guys stuck out among the, the others in this Puerto Rican uh, royalty, and it's Carlos Correa, shortstop, Houston Astros. Like that's my guy. So, man, we're just talking. He's looking me in the eyes. We're like still pumped about 2017 world champions. Like we're the best. Like, and he's like so nice. And like, we're friends. And um, it just made me feel so good. I'm kind of a big deal because I can just drop these names, you know? And um, it made me feel like super cool. And you, you know what I really thought? I was like, I wish Carlos Correa and I could be neighbors. We would be totally BFFs. What if, what if, you, met, what if you met God? I mean, what if God moves in next door? No, like, I mean it. God, creator of the universe in Park Hill. Like, you would kind of feel like a big deal. Like, your life would mean something. Like, he chose to move in to your street. For these Israelites, their life was not monotonous. They didn't think they lived small lives. It was brimming with meaning and purpose. And guys, listen, this is how, like, we're supposed to see ourselves as the church. Like, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he uses these really intense metaphors and describes us as, like, bricks that are interconnecting, that when we're together, we build up, and we're this temple. He literally calls us this temple for God's presence. This is what he says in Ephesians 2, chapter or chapter 22, verse 22. He says, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the temple where, the, where God is dwelling. And you keep, on, you keep reading, of course, in our text, in Genesis and Exodus 40, you realize, though, the presence of God's kind of complicated. Look at verse 35. It says, But Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the presence of God was dangerous. Moses couldn't enter the tent because the glory of God would incinerate him. It would violently purify him, right? This is the same reason why God graciously exiled Adam and Eve from the garden, right? It's his presence is dangerous now because we're sinners. And so this semester, we're going to look at Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. In Leviticus, when we get there, it's going to ask this question. How do sinful people come into the presence of a holy God. And so Leviticus is, is, is going to show, is this coming, going now? I'm all right. Uh, Leviticus is going to show us and teach us how to come into God's presence. And just spoiler alert, like you don't do it flippantly, right? It's serious. And so Israel would shape their entire lives over these holy and unholy or clean and unclean categories, these ideas, so that they would know the weightiness of a holy God. All of this is, is to show them how to correctly come into his presence. And then in Numbers, we're going to see this mobile tent, this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, we're going to see it move, right? God's presence moves and leads. You saw that, of course, in verses 36 and 37. 
Uh, and when God moves, Israel follows. Why? Because they want to be near to God. They want to stay in his presence. And sometimes God's presence is leading them to places they don't want to go. Sometimes he takes the long route, and they don't think he should. Now, sometimes they follow cheerfully, and it's great. But sometimes they're reluctant and ungrateful, and it goes really poorly. But we're, we're going to look at some of those stories, learn from them. And then in Deuteronomy, we're going to see God reminding them that he wants to dwell with them and have relationship with them. He wants them to know him, to have a, a, have a meaningful relationship. So he gives them, he's saying, give them this covenant, help them understand the covenant, how to keep the covenant, how to live into the promises of a relationship with the God Almighty, creator of the universe, their rescuer. That's what Deuteronomy is going to do. So this is what we're going to be doing this semester, this those three books. But all of that begs one question, and this will be our conclusion for this introduction ser sermon. There's one question, and it's this. Why? <laughs> I mean, what have we done to deserve the presence of a holy, loving God? Like, why us? Why? And, it's and how? How? <laughs> It's really interesting. The New Testament is so obsessed with that question. They're always seeking to answer that question. Listen to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. You'll remember it begins with those famous words, in the beginning was the Word. And then in verse 14, chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, it says, listen to this, and the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt, we keep saying that word dwelling, dwelt, to dwell. When he dwelt among us, the writer John, he's like, he's, he, it's a play on words. Like it's literally in the Greek if you were to translate it literally, you wouldn't use the word dwell. It literally means pitched his tent, or you turn the word, the noun tabernacle, into a verb. He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent. So John, what's he doing? He's looking at the writings of Moses and saying that in Jesus, God pitched his tent. He dwelled. He tabernacled among us. Don't miss it, you guys. Jesus is God dwelling on earth with his people. The restoration, reconciliation project between heaven and earth is happening. Jesus is the presence of God on earth. Jesus is heaven on earth, you see. And wherever he goes, you want to follow. In the Bible, there are two great salvific events, two rescue stories that absolutely defined God's people and, and shaped their self-understanding. The first, of course, is the Exodus. Through the Red Sea, Israel understood themselves as being a rescued people. And then the second one is the second Exodus, the second great rescue. It's the death and resurrection of our Savior, and we are beneficiaries of both, but especially that second one. 
God doesn't want you to be impressed with his power. He wants you to know him, to have relationship with him. He wants to be not a thing, but everything to you. He, doesn't, he wants you to not even be able to understand yourself apart from who you are through that rescue. He wants it to be that core, that singular lens of self-understanding. And the whole story of the Bible is the reunification of heaven and earth. At the very end of history, the very final chapter, where the story is going, it says this. This is Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Listen carefully to these words. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be, their God, will be with them as their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God himself will dwell with us. The story of scripture is about God dwelling with his people. And heaven and earth will once more be inseparably joined. And that gives us our lives meaning and purpose from this mood, this national, national mood that has overtaken us. Guys, let's, let's put away the jet skis. Let's put away the jet skis. Let's be God's people where he dwells, where he heals. This semester, let's be surprised by Christ as we dig into the writings of Moses. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's like it's too good to be true that the, the reconciliation, the perfection, the harmony of God and man being together, it feels too good to be true. It's so hard to believe. But Lord, it has to be true. We need it to be true. Oh Lord, give us faith to believe it. Do not give us over to this mood of aimlessness where every wind and wave just carries us about. Oh, make us firm, because, Lord, we are having a hard time of it, Lord. It is a sad day. Sometimes they're good days, but mostly they're hard days. Oh, Lord, and it is hard in Denver. Lord, be close to Denver Prez. Be close to Denver Prez. Fill us. Please, Lord, with faith, in the same way that you rescued them, in a new way, carry us along. Give us faith. We need you, Lord. We're counting on you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.